Good morning. Hello, my name is Rob. If you haven't met me, I'm one of the ministers here, and it is a pleasure to see each and every person here and to welcome you here. Whether you're here with us on site or online, it is just such a, a privilege to be with you today. I want to start off by telling you that I have a rescue dog that I love very, very much. But, like all rescue dogs, he has some behavioral issues, to say the least. And they don't make me love him any less, but they do get me a bit hot under the collar at times. They do make me a little bit annoyed at him at times because, you know, he doesn't always make the wisest choices. He's a small dog, but he doesn't seem to know that sometimes. And uh, sometimes I have to intervene to make sure that he or somebody else doesn't get seriously hurt. I'll give you an example. When I walk him, I have to walk around with this very, very fashionable bright hivers vest on that says, caution. Do not approach. And the reason I have to do that is because he is an anxious little fellow. He really is quite an anxious little dog. And basically that means he's not friendly towards other people or animals that he doesn't know, uh, particularly towards other animals, because he sees everything as a threat. That's basically his default position. Now, I understand that and I don't judge him for that because, you know, he's been through some stuff. That's nature of life on the planet. But it can get him in trouble, especially when he decides that he's going to mouth off to a dog that's about 10 times his size and just let him know, I'm going to tear you limb from limb if you come a step forward. And sometimes you just see these big dogs just looking at him with this look of absolute curiosity, like, what? Are you serious right now? And, you know, if, if I don't pull him back on the leash or if I don't pick him up, literally manhandle him and walk him away, Either he or someone else is going to get hurt. That, that, is, that is pretty much what happens when anything comes in close proximity to his teeth. Someone gets hurt. So he doesn't like it much, right? When I pull him away, when I lift him up or whatever, when I move him away from conflict, when I wrestle him away from that situation, he does not like it. But if I don't wrestle with him, either he or someone else is going to get hurt in the process. And hopefully, you know, our, our goal is over time that Tracy and I will be able to through love, support, and care, and training, we'll be able to get him used to the fact that not everything out there is a threat. He doesn't have to try and attack everything that comes anywhere near him or bark at everything. He is getting better. That's, that's the good news. So you can all give a big yay for Max this morning. Um, but, but we don't do the things like putting on the harness and clipping him to a lead and wearing a hiver's vest. We don't do these things in order to restrict him or shame him or kind of point out the fact that he's not a good dog. We do it to protect him and to protect other people. And this example from the life of Reverend Rob the Dog Whisperer, it's, uh, it's a great example, I think, that brings into sharp focus rules, you know, the rules that we, we sometimes have to enforce in society or in the church. Because, you know, whether we're talking about the law of the land that's meant to protect individuals and monitor their behavior in society, or we're talking about maybe the commandments of God that people in the church would obey, uh, that, that create boundaries particularly for Christians. Either way, that the goal behind these boundaries is not to shame people. It's not to punish people. It's meant to bring rescuing and restoration, not judgment and punishment. The trouble is we get this wrong, don't we? A lot of the time, especially when we're the one who's got hurt in the process. When we've been hurt by someone, what do we want? We want vengeance. We want punishment. We want somebody else to feel the pain. And I think that's why Jesus 
took the time to speak to his disciples and to make sure that it was a priority, that he taught them how best to relate to one another when they disagreed. Not if they disagreed, when they disagreed. Anybody here never had an argument with another person around them? One. Good. That's good. You're going to have to teach me the secret after this because, man, you are a very spiritual person. I am impressed. Okay. Well, for most of us, I think we know that it's pretty hard to get on with everyone, isn't it? Some people are just annoying, right? That's just, that's just the way we feel. Sometimes we don't get on very well with one another. And it doesn't matter if you're a Christian or not. If you're a Christian and you go to church, I promise you there'll be people in your church that actually start to annoy you. Some of us are quite annoying. Let's be honest about it. And the bigger your church, the more chance there is you'll find more people to annoy you. Because if you put enough people in a room, some of them are going to be so different to you that you just can't help but not feel like you get on that well. So what do we do when that's the case? And hey, by the way, if you're joining us today and you wouldn't call yourself a Christian, you're just kind of exploring faith and you're not really sure what to make of it, I want to tell you, I think today's talk is going to be really helpful for you too. You don't have to be a Christian for this to be relevant and helpful in your relationships. So do stay tuned, do, do keep listening. But if you are a Christian, there's kind of an added expectation on you because in, in the teaching of Jesus, he's teaching specifically about how Christians are to disagree with one another well, so it's very much a church matter. It's how we relate to one another when we mess things up. And um, it's, it's found in the book of Matthew. Um, so that's what we're going to be looking at today. Matthew, before meeting Jesus, was a tax collector. And he was working for the Romans, this occupying Gentile force that had come and taken over the land of Israel. They were not best liked. And he was working for them and basically taking money from his own people. You can imagine, he was not the most popular chap around. And there's every chance that like almost all of the tax collectors of the time and the place, he may well not have treated people very fairly. It's quite possible that like many tax collectors, he was a little bit corrupt. He used to extort a little bit of money. I don't know this for a fact, but certainly they had a reputation. Tax collectors at the time had a big reputation for being unjust and unfair, not just because they were working for the bad guys, you know, who had come and taken over the country, but because anybody who was willing to do that was usually willing to also extort a bit of money in the process. Certainly the religious leaders of the day saw Matthew like this. And we know this because Matthew tells his own story in Matthew 9. This is what he says. He says, as Jesus went on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at a tax collector's booth. Follow me, he told him. And Matthew got up and followed him. While Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. When the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? On hearing this, Jesus said, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. The Pharisees were like the ruling elite at the time in religious circles. And they thought people who had sinned, who had done something in, in, uh, you know, in contravention of God's laws, they thought they should just be excluded from the church community, from the community of faith. That they shouldn't be engaged with, they shouldn't be sort of, there shouldn't be these attempts to rehabilitate them. They should come to their own conclusions and repent and make their own way back. But you know, Jesus saw things really differently. He went to their houses and he ate with them, which in Jewish culture is a really, really big sign of engagement. 
You, you don't eat with people that you don't consider to be friends. And so he would go and he would eat with them and he would have these conversations and he would be patient with them and he would try and help them. It was a bit more like a doctor with a patient than maybe this idea that we sometimes have of, of religious leaders almost like prosecuting people and kind of judging people and being in their face. Jesus wasn't like that with people who weren't living according to God's standards. He was really involved in their life. He saw potential in people to do good. And he had conversations with people who had messed up all the time, and he showed them an incredible amount of mercy and grace and support. And he kind of walked them down that road to recovery from wherever their life had led them. His motive was about restoration, not judgment or religious piety. And Matthew never forgot the way Jesus treated him the way Jesus was willing to sit and eat with him and talk it through. He remembered that motive that drove Jesus to continue engaging with sinners like him and teaching, and teaching his disciples how best to relate to one another when we settle dis disputes amongst one another. And thankfully, Matthew recorded Jesus' teaching on the matter so that we too can learn from his instructions, the way that he instructed his disciples to iron out their differences, to wrestle with one another without going to all-out war. You see, Jesus' strategy for wrestling a brother and sister away from the consequences of, of, of harmful behavior is something we can all learn for. I think it's a four-tier strategy that we find in, in Matthew's gospel that can, is aimed to bring about reconciliation, that's aimed to bring about restoration in that relationship. So let's start at the beginning. Firstly, this is the first thing that Jesus says. He says, firstly, if your brother or sister sins, go and point out their fault just between the two of you. If they listen to you, you have won them over. What a great place to start. I want you to notice what Jesus doesn't say. He doesn't say, go and point out their fault to your friends. That's gossip, right? And we all know how easy it is to do that. When someone offends us, we want to go and create a case against them with a whole bunch of other people. And you know, not only is, is gossip an attack on the person, but it's like a secretive attack. It's really sneaky. That should be the first indication to us that something is wrong. That if someone's offended us and we're talking to somebody else about it, something's not right here. We need to be talking to the person. He also says, don't write them a letter. That's not what he said. He says, go and speak to them. Because, you know, here's a little bit of life advice. If you want to diffuse a situation, don't try and do that in writing. I'll tell you why. It's quite simple. You can't see body language. You can't read tone. When you get an email from somebody, you read it how you think they might be saying it. And that can be very different to the way that they actually mean you to hear the message. And that's why I believe Jesus was so forthright about going and seeing people in person when you have a disagreement with them, so that you can actually see your, the facial expressions of the person, they can see your facial expressions, they can read your body language, they can begin to sense when you're upset or when you're asking a question. None of that is possible if you just are reading from a letter. So a little bit of life advice, free life advice. If you want to get on better with people, write less letters, have more conversations. Just saying. And I'll remember that the next time I get an interesting email. <laughs> <clears throat> he 
Moving on. <laughs> you need to see a person's face in order to know what they're really trying to communicate to you. You need to hear someone's tone in order to really listen and understand. And remember that the goal in this conversation is get the person to listen to you and to really hear you. They might not agree with you, but getting them to hear you for what you're actually saying is the first step. So that's step one. Go and see the person that you have a disagreement with. Discuss the matter personally, just between the two of you. But what happens if they refuse to listen to you? What if your plea to change their behavior falls on deaf ears? Well, in that case, Jesus says, but if they will not listen, take two or three others along so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. You see, in Jewish law, it was illegal to convict someone of a crime unless the testimony that was being brought against them was confirmed by more than just one single victim. There had to be other people that were involved in the process and said, yeah, actually, I've witnessed this behavior myself, or, you know, I, th I think somebody else might have been a victim here. And, of course, this is done to make sure that people aren't falsely accused of things. Well, Jesus picks up on this idea and and it's an idea that people would have been familiar with, the idea of being innocent until proven guilty, right? We still hold that in our courts of law today, thankfully. And it's important, it's really important that we be, begin to ascertain, is this allegation that's being made that somebody's done something wrong, is it actually true? So once you've had the conversation, it's not gone well, at that point, maybe two or three people join you in that process of trying to work out what's actually happened. See, it's really important as well to remember not to unnecessarily shame someone. That's why Jesus says you take one or two people, you keep the circle small as you kind of investigate what's going on, how can we resolve this? Keep that circle small so that gossip doesn't get out there and that somebody's reputation doesn't get ruined by something that could end up being a misunderstanding. Maybe the person didn't do what you thought they did. Maybe somebody else can clarify that, who knows? So if the people that you take with you have witnessed the bad behavior, they're there to be able to say, no, actually, I know you disagree with Tom. Tom has told you that, you know, you've done this, but I saw you do it as well. So they act as witnesses. If they haven't seen the behavior, then they can be impartial. They can listen to you both having an argument and they can ask the right questions and they can come to their own conclusions. And maybe you're wrong. Maybe you come to the person saying, I think you're wrong because you've done this. And it turns out that actually you're the one that's messed up. And the two people that go with you will have the kind word with you and say, actually, I think you should leave him alone. This is all your fault. Awkward. But that's why it's dealt with in a small group. That's why you have these conversations in private so that it doesn't become a bigger issue than it needs to. You don't take a lynch mob with you to settle an argument. That is not what we're called to do as Christians. So what happens if after wise people have been taken, maybe it's the elders or maybe it's just people who are mature in their faith and they come and have this conversation and the two or three of you have the conversation and clearly the person's still not listening. What if they will not change their behavior and now all three of you are convinced this is a problem? What happens then? Well, Jesus says this. He says, if they still refuse to listen, tell it to the church. Wow, that escalated quickly, right? <laughs> Why on earth would Jesus encourage Christians to talk about somebody's sins in a more public setting? That's a big question, isn't it? It's a difficult question. But I want to suggest that there are maybe at least three possible reasons for taking this course of action. Firstly, 
Everyone has influence. Everyone. And so bad behavior, if it's not challenged in a person, can spread to other people. People can be influenced by the behavior of others around them. And the reality is, if you have one person who's constantly getting away with stuff, and other people in the church see that, some of them might be tempted to do it too. And so it's important to nip it in the bud and say, this kind of behavior is not okay. This is not acceptable. Sometimes to protect other people from falling into the same temptation, we have to say something about it. And it might not always be necessary to mention the person's name. That's important to note. Depends on how public the issue has become. But it's important that we say that certain patterns of behavior are just not okay. So, you know, if Tom's been beating up everybody in church every Thursday night, we're going to mention that. We're going to say, hey, Tom, you can't beat people up. And we're going to tell people, stay away from Tom. He's very aggressive. But there's a second reason you may have to talk about it publicly. And it might be that the problem is already bigger than you realize. It might be that they've already influenced others. It might be that the person who's been the victim of whatever it is that the person has done is not the only victim. It might be that there are other people already perpetrating exactly the same sins against other people. And so by addressing the issue publicly, what you're doing is you're trying to stop the rot that's already taking place in the church. And sometimes that's really important to call it out for what it is and say this kind of behavior is not appropriate. You know, the original offended person might not be the only victim and only when you mention it publicly might someone have the courage to say, actually, that's true for me too. We've seen this all over the world, haven't we, in this Me Too movement that's taken, you know, a lot of dirt out of the shadows and brought it into the light, stuff that's been happening, people that are being abused and Finally, people have had the courage to say something because others have said something first. And that's why sometimes it's important to drag things out into the light and to make them public, to say this kind of behavior is not acceptable. There's a third reason, of course. And the third reason is that sometimes the unity of the church's response, the shock that they maybe show when they hear about certain behavior that's been happening, that might be the final thing that convinces the person yeah, I've messed up. When they see 200 people in a room go, oh, he did what? <laughs> Suddenly they go, yeah, okay, maybe that's my bad. It might be the thing that turns him around. Um, and once again, it doesn't always have to be publicly mentioned who the person is. Sometimes the person might be quietly sitting there and you can anonymously say someone's been doing this and everyone goes, oh, and then they go, yeah, that's my bad. And that might be the point at which they are restored, at, at which they decide to change their ways. But what happens if that doesn't happen? What happens if the whole church is agreed that this behavior is unacceptable, but the person just will not change their ways? Well, this is what Jesus says in the second half of that sentence. He says, and if they refuse to listen even to the church, treat them as you would a pagan or a tax collector. This is one of the most misunderstood teachings of Jesus, I think. You see, like we learned at the beginning, in Jewish society of the time, pagans, in other words, non-Jewish people, and tax collectors were some of the most you know, despised people in society. 
The Romans had taken over the land. They used tax collectors to do their bidding. People were fleeced by these tax collectors. They were not popular. And so the assumption that people make when they read this teaching of Jesus is that what we're saying is when somebody does this, we should just shun them. We should push them out. That's what the Pharisees would have done. But that's not what Jesus did, is it? That's not what Jesus did with pagans and with tax collectors. And that's why Matthew was telling this story, because he remembers how Jesus treated him with dignity, with grace, with a real sense of respect, with a belief that he could do better. Jesus, as we read in Matthew's own account, ate with people he profoundly disagreed with. He hung out with people who didn't keep the laws that maybe were required of religious folk. And he spent time with them, talking it through, debating as a friend, not as some kind of prosecutor or as a judge. So when Jesus says to us that if somebody won't listen to the church, we should treat them as a tax collector or a pagan, he means the way Jesus treated tax collectors and pagans, which is with gentleness and respect with engagement that carries on from that point. You don't treat them necessarily as somebody who believes the same things as you, but you treat them as somebody that still has some kind of connection or interest in the same way that you would treat somebody who came to church for the first time, who was just exploring, not really sure what to make of it all. Maybe somebody from another faith who was just asking you questions. You wouldn't treat them with disrespect. You would treat them with a, a massive amount of respect because at least they're still engaging. And you wouldn't expect them to necessarily act in ways that a fully committed disciple of Jesus who, who is committed to the lordship of Jesus would act because that's further down the road for them. You treat them as someone who maybe isn't a Christian yet and maybe doesn't recognize why this particular line of behavior is inappropriate because maybe it's not inappropriate in the society in which you live. Maybe it's only inappropriate for Christians. And sometimes, folks, I think we need to get that straight. In our conversations with people, we need to recognize that there are certain things that God calls Christians to do that are above and beyond what, what people in society are called to do. And we shouldn't judge them by the same standard. We shouldn't ask them to do uh, or act in certain ways before they come to a, a belief that they have to completely give their lives to Jesus and do whatever Jesus has commanded his disciples to do. We should just keep engaging with them and connecting with them. And showing them why the commands of God for God's people make sense. Jesus healed the servant of a Roman centurion. He had a really long conversation with a Samaritan woman. And the Samaritans, by the way, were a group of people that the Jews had decided had left Orthodox Jewish religion and had adopted all kinds of pagan culture and were living according to a whole bunch of different rules. Jesus had a good conversation with her at a well. He didn't condemn her. Jesus spoke to another tax collector by the name of Zacchaeus and went and ate with him in his house, much to the consternation of the religious leaders of the time. Jesus acted in ways and called his disciples to act in ways that maybe were counterintuitive to people who are so focused on piety and religion and the way of doing things right but they forget that every human being on the planet, including themselves, is deeply flawed. We all make mistakes. And we all need to have a measure of humility when we're trying to talk through how we offend one another when we do that. Jesus told the story of a good Samaritan. 
as the example of who we are to love as our neighbor. You couldn't get anyone more opposite in the Jewish mind than a Samaritan. But the Samaritan is the good guy in the story, the person with potential. And Jesus told us because he wants us to recognize the potential in people with whom we profoundly disagree. Even if they're in our church environment and they don't act in ways that make us think that they know anything about what Christianity is about, you might be surprised how deeply spiritual they might be. But they just might not know exactly what Jesus taught on a certain issue. Maybe in a nice, quiet conversation with them, you might be able to teach them that and you might win them over. Maybe in a quiet conversation with a couple of others, you might be able to win them over. Or maybe the whole church might be able to win them over. Or maybe just by ongoing engagement over years with grace and love and support, even though they don't live according to the standards that you think they should meet, maybe you'll win them over by the fact that it's not your standards that matter. It's the person that matters to you. I just want to bring one point of clarity from a deeply challenging message that there are exceptions, of course, to this four-step rule. There are things that people do sometimes in society that whether you're a Christian or not are deeply offensive and hurtful. There are things that people do to one another that go way beyond the realms of just, you know, breaking a law expected of Christians. In the New Testament part of the Bible, Paul, an apostle, an early leader, talks about somebody in the church who's been committing incest. And he says to them, even pagans would find that disgraceful behavior. Even pagans wouldn't allow that. You should cast this person out from your midst and you should have nothing to do with them. So there is a time when engagement may have to end. Usually that may be when the law of the land steps in and somebody has to get punished for something that they've done that is so heinous that actually there needs to be some justice involved. And in that case, you may want to still provide pastoral support and care outside of the church context. But maybe they won't be allowed for obvious reasons to be in the church because maybe they're a danger to the people around them until such a point that they're rehabilitated and then they should be welcomed back. But those are the exceptions. Those are the extreme exceptions. And what Jesus is trying to tell us, particularly as his disciples, is that before the extreme exceptions, we should go to extremes to make sure that we still connect with people, that we still engage with them, that we still believe the best of them, that we still believe that God has a plan for their life and that they have potential. And that we can still show them the kind of grace and love that Jesus showed Matthew, this tax collector working for the Romans and probably skimming a bit off on the side. That didn't stop Jesus from continuing to engage with him. And as a result of that, Matthew became a disciple and wrote a book in the New Testament. He became a really prominent leader in the faith community. So let's just summarize. What have we learned today? When you disagree with someone, have a one-on-one -on -one conversation with them first. Personally, talk it through. Try and iron it out. Try and win them over and get them to listen to you. Or maybe they'll win you over. Maybe you were wrong. Admit that. And then at least one way or another, you're reconciled. If that doesn't work, 
involve a couple of other wise people to be able to mediate in that situation. If that doesn't work, and the person is a Christian or claims to be a Christian, we may have to get the church involved. We may have to have more people involved in that process of saying this behavior is not acceptable. And if that doesn't work, well, then we have to recognize this person might not be a Christian at all. How would we treat somebody if we didn't expect them to follow the laws that Christians follow and we just wanted to engage with them as somebody who was seeking, hopefully with gentleness, grace, and respect, and an ongoing engagement? People don't like it when we tell them they've done something wrong. Newsflash! But it sometimes has to happen. And I want to encourage you to have those difficult conversations because it's better to have the difficult conversation now than to try and deal with the fallout that happens because you didn't have the difficult conversation. And I know that's not easy. And if you need help in trying to work out how to do that, please do get in touch with us. We'd love to be able to support you pastorally as you try and have some of those conversations. But remember, before you come to us, it's probably worth having that one-on-one -on -one conversation first because we might not ever need to know about it. You can settle it with them one-on-one -on -one first. I would like to pray for you now. I know it's not the most uplifting message, right? I, I don't know what you're looking like online, but I'm looking at a sea of faces going, <laughs> it's a little depressing when we fall out. But here's, here's two things you need to know. Firstly, it will happen because we're humans. Secondly, there's a lot of hope. If you follow this process of trying to reconcile, you'd be amazed how your relationships can get stronger through honest conversations with one another that say, you've really, you've hurt me. Let's talk this through. You'd be surprised how many people would be really receptive to hearing that and that actually your relationship grows stronger in the process. And that's what I'm going to pray for you this morning. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray for strong relationships in this place. Relationships that are based on truth being spoken in love. Relationships that are based on going as far as we possibly can to just keep engaging with the people around us. To, to forgive like you forgave, Lord. To sacrifice our own pride or our own high standing for the sake of relationships. And I pray that you would use this teaching uh, of Jesus to be able to encourage us to do that in ways that are appropriate so that we eliminate gossip and slander, especially in the church when nobody wants it. And that we remove the hypocrisy that so often happens when, when sin gets left unchecked within the church and we say one thing but we act another way. We have to address these issues. But Lord, help us to do that in ways that are fair and just and loving and show one another that what is most important is that before Jesus, we are all brothers and sisters. We are not at war. We can wrestle with one another with these issues without being at war. And I pray that you would help us to do just that. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.